The following Dharma discourse was given by Jeffrey Shugan Arnold at Zen Mountain Monastery. Shugan Roshi is the head of the Mountains and Rivers Order and abbot of the monastery. This talk, like all of our talks, is offered free of charge. If you would like to make a donation or find out more about our various programs, visit us online at zmn.org. Thank you for listening. From the Treatise on Awakening, Faith in the Mahayana. Discerning the characteristics for embarking on the way is so called because it refers to the truth of the way realized by all Buddhas and to which all Bodhisattvas aspire to awaken, to cultivate, and to progress towards. In general, there are three kinds of aspiration to awakening. Aspiration to awakening through the consummation of faith, through understanding and practice, and through realizing the way. So I spoke a little bit about this earlier in the week, this 6th century teaching that is was very important in East Asian Buddhism, in Korea, and Japan, China. And uh, so I'm just drawing a very short section from it on these three kinds of aspiration. But the treatise from the very beginning is very clear in its purpose, which is to cultivate faith, particularly for those who are more in the beginning stages of practice. And as I said earlier, that can you know, go on for years in terms of needing to continue to develop and strengthen those really essential aspects of practice that are so important, which are really our own virtues and qualities. And so the aspiration to awakening through realizing the way. It says, with the aspiration to awakening through realizing the way, what perceptual field is realized from the level of pure mind up to the final bodhisattva level? It is suchness. It is explained as a perceptual field based on the operating consciousness. With this realization, however, there are no perceptual fields. There's only cognition of suchness which is called the Dharma body. Now, admittedly, this text is not particularly beautiful or poetic. Sometimes you get a wonderful meal with lots of spices and condiments, and sometimes you don't. <laughs> and so it's, it's really very spare. And like many important teachings, it's very compact, it's very condensed. And so it's, those teachings were generally always expected to be followed up with commentary. That's what a Teisho is. To bring out those, those aspects of the teaching that, that are very condensed and may not be well understood. So the essence here is that the that which is being realized is suchness. In Mahayana Buddhism, suchness is, in essence, the third noble truth. It is liberation. It is prajnaparamita. It is the realization of all things as being non-dual, unified, essentially and naturally and originally peaceful. 
free of conflict, free of discrimination. And in that suchness, because it is our essential nature, is what we are practicing to realize directly. In realizing that, we realize liberation from all that binds us. Being suchness, being nirvana, as the Buddha made clear in his own teachings, it is beyond any definition or description. It has no fixed characteristics. It is, in essence, unutterable. Anything that is... And that's why we sit on this, in this training hall, this hall of awakening, on this seat of the Buddha, the Bodhi seat. In a very real sense, doing exactly what the Buddha did in our bodies and minds, in our time, in our way, which is what has been transmitted down over these many generations. There are sutras and teachings abundant that have come down to us, but what has been transmitted is not that. It is what you experience sitting on that cushion, turning inward to your mind, your one mind, your Buddha mind, which is the mind of every human being and the mind of every phenomenal thing. That's why it transforms lives. Because it's not knowledge, it's not information, it's not, it doesn't change. That, I think, is, is, was the Buddha's understanding and brilliance, genius, perhaps. That he understood that anything that he experienced, any meditative state, any experience he had, a bliss or of, of insight or of any meditative experience, could not be ultimate liberation because it was something that was a result of his own efforts. Being the result of his own efforts, it would eventually pass. It would come apart. So he knew that you can't, one cannot rely on anything that one does or has done or has created or knows to ultimately free ourselves because whatever that is we're relying upon will eventually fall away. Suchness is that which has no form, no place. It cannot be created. We do not sit here to create a state of enlightenment. That has never been done. That can never be done. That doesn't stop us from trying. (laughs) (laughs) That's why the Buddha, based in his own words, hesitated after his enlightenment to teach. He thought, I don't think so. First of all, he said, people are too enamored of their attachments. Secondly, this this dharma, this which is to be realized, this suchness, is subtle and difficult to see directly and cannot be seen with the senses. And that's what, that, those are what we rely on, right? That, those are our 
doorways, our vehicles for knowing everything. And so one can imagine, right, him having no precedent, no predecessor, no teacher that he could turn to and say, what did you do? Sitting there and giving it some serious thought, as he said, it would only be tiresome away. Because he was not a lazy kind of person. <laughs> Shying away from difficult things. And so that perceptual field which is realized, that which is realized in the mind, from the level of the pure, unconditioned mind, all the way up to the ultimate bodhisattva level, that is, all the way through the path, all of our efforts and practices and months and years of training, that which is realized, it says, is suchness. And this is explained as a perceptual field based on consciousness. It's something that we experience. That's how it's explained. But it goes on to say, but in this realization, we realize there are no perceptual fields here. There is no perceptual field. That is not what is happening here. That is not what's realized. It is not a perception. And again, for the same reason, perceptions, powerful and fickle. They come and go. You have yours, I have mine. They evolve, they change. They cannot be relied upon, not in an ultimate sense. So it is not in the field of any perception. It is only the cognition of suchness. And cognition means direct contact, realization. That's what realization is. Is the direct experience of that which cannot be experienced by a subject and object. Dadaroshi once, many years ago, described it as emerging from a place of complete absence of, su of subject and object, of any perceptions, any characteristics or qualities, time and space, self and other. And that at the that liminal, that threshold of emerging, that the, the, the practitioner of something. Now, it's, that's just a way of describing. That's not what happens. <laughs> but it's a way of describing how can how can there be realization of something that in realization becomes cognition, something that we experience, we know, but we know in a different way? It's not the knowing that we have used all of our lives. And that's why we sit on these seats. And that's why no teaching, no sutra, no treatise, no paya can bring you to that itself. You have to work that out. That's the thing. When I said this morning that, that the whole of this is we hold in our own hands. And I think it takes a long time, at least in my humble experience, <laughs> to understand how completely and profoundly true that is. Because we can think, I get it, I have to do this, right? I have to practice, right? You can't do that for me. Right? Yeah, but no. It's much more than that.
it's much more radical than that. Bodhidharma said, what is understanding all dharmas? He said, when in the midst of things, the world, you don't give rise to a view, a deluded view, this is understanding. In other words, in the presence of internal and external experiences, you don't project onto it an idea of anything. What it is, what's happening, where it's coming from, where it's going, what it means to you. Can you have it? This is called understanding. Understanding means not engendering thought in relation to things. Not engendering covetousness for things. Grasping, wanting, appropriating, possessing. And not engendering falseness in connection with things. In other words, not deceiving ourselves or others. Obviously, intentionally. But in delusion, it's by and large unintentional. We're not trying to deceive ourselves. Not trying to deceive others, not trying to deceive the objects that are in front of us. The deception is not a willful thing. Well, that's not entirely true. It's willful in the sense that we are caught in our own habitual patterns, which is our business, and is a result of our will, and desires, and views. And that way, I remember doing an introductory retreat, doing a a talk here in the morning, and we were talking about compassion, and somebody said, raised their hand and said, you know, my grandmother's this wonderful, wonderful person. She's so kind. She's so nice. She's so generous. Is she deluded? And I said, mm, probably. <laughs> and she's all those good things. <laughs> the delusion isn't a pejorative, although it can come across that way in the teachings, which I hear as an encouragement, right, to not linger there. It's just what happens when we look out and see all of this, and it seems so inarguably not me. And then I look in, and this seems so inarguably me. Bodhidharma says, when forms are formless, that is, when we realize forms are formless, this is called understanding forms, objects, things that appear in our senses. When existence is existence-less, that is, when it's realized as being empty of any inherent existence, this is understanding existence, being. When birth is birthless, this is called understanding birth. When dharma is free of dharma, it's called understanding dharma. And so when we begin with right understanding, so let's have a good understanding of Zazen. Right? I would guess we would all agree that that is important. We would want to have a good understanding of Zazen. And then when we go into our seat to practice Zazen, we have to free ourselves of holding on to that idea of Zazen. If we want to cultivate compassion, and bring forth compassion in our lives, we have to have an understanding of what compassion is, how it's taught, how we cultivate it, what its qualities are, and so on. 
And then we have to let go of what we think compassion is. Because when we hold on to that idea, those ideas, they become the thing that now has substance, has form, has existence. And you either have it or you don't. You're getting it or you're not getting it. You're moving towards it or you're moving away from it. That's the view that we're trying to free ourselves from. Buddha Dharma says, whatever you meet, directly understand it. This is the nature of suchness, directly experiencing. The wisdom eye is now open. Whatever may come, let it be free of differences and sameness in all things at the same time. Absolute and relative. There's no ignoring or denying of differences. They are abundant. But there's no attachment. There's no deception within the differences. There's no delusion or, or attachment or misunderstanding of things being free of characteristics. Bodhidharma says, this is true understanding, prajna, suchness. And so, you know, if we appreciate that when we, from the very beginning, when we first enter into a place like this, we're greeted at the door, we're ushered into a Buddha hall, the Buddha hall, and we're given instructions on Zazen, or however you came about that. For me, it was in a book in 1976 that had instruction in Zazen, practicing the breath. To me, that was the totality of Buddhism. <laughs> That's all I knew. That's all there was. That was the only Dharma I could refer to. But it was enough for that time. But what I didn't understand, but I, what I understood was sitting, assuming a posture, turning my attention towards my breath, trying to maintain my attention on the breath, counting the breath, seeing thoughts arise. I understood all of that. I mean, well enough. And then I tried to practice it, and I did practice it. What I did not understand was that I was that what I was doing and what I was had been received instruction in was directing me directly into this understanding of prajna of suchness. And there were many times where sitting by myself alone wherever, wherever I was, because I kept sitting as I was growing up and traveling around, and periodically I would think, what am I doing? What is this? Like I had no sense of what this was beyond all of those aspects of Zazen that I understood well enough and was practicing. And then I had this sense that there's enlightenment. I didn't really have a clue about what that was, but it sounded good. And I wanted some. (laughs) But there was nothing else, nothing in between. So in that question, when I would question, say, what am I doing? What is this? How is this? I knew what I felt, what was driving me into practice, the, the, the anguish that I felt, no matter how well my life was going. But what I didn't understand was how what I was doing in Zazen was bringing me closer to the 
resolution, the liberation of that anguish. Fortunately, I didn't overthink it and I just kept sitting. (laughs) Why? Because there was nothing else to do, basically. Nothing else that I trusted enough. And so what is happening when we sit? To sit and turn the attention to the breath or to the koan or to awareness itself and to not alter. I spoke earlier about trying to bend things into our desires, to conform the world, make the world conform to what we think we need it to be so that we have the life that we rightly are seeking. And that consistently and repeatedly does not work or works well enough only to keep us on that wheel until we decide we're we're getting off. To not alter what appears. To trust that all things appear within their own suchness. Dogen has a fasco, the reality of all things, in which he makes it very clear there's walking thusness, sitting thusness, leaping, lying down thusness. There's tree thusness, mountain thusness. And the danger is that the more it's uttered, the more we sow those words, in a sense, the more or the less powerful, real, radical, profound, revolutionary they can be. It's like, oh, suchness. Got it. I hope we spend the rest of our lives plumbing the depths. Padmasambhava said, don't fabricate, don't modify. Remain free from your mental constructions. As primordial openness, your original state, primordial openness, it's ancient, it's universal. Samsara and nirvana dissolve right where they are. Your innermost obstacle, belief in a separate self, naturally subsides, drops away. Why? Because it has no life, it has no being, it has no existence, no form, other than all that we give to it through our thoughts. Portent of dread has changed into auspiciousness. Take that in. The portent of dread, of all that we've dreaded, of all that we've hated, of all of our enemies, all the things that are keeping us back, down, change into auspiciousness. What appeared before as dread is now auspicious, is now filled with possibility. Whatever was fearful or overwhelming or impossible, out of reach, has now become an ally, really. You know, I was saying to somebody earlier today, and this is a difficult, in a way, difficult aspect of Buddhist teaching. 
that is said in a hundred thousand ways, but every once in a while I come across a teaching that just says it directly. And that is that in this practice, on the path of liberation, we actually have to encounter adversity. And that's hard in a world that has so much adversity. Right? It's like, really? Don't we have enough? It's not that we need more. <laughs> that's not what it's saying. It's saying we just need the adversity that is already here and that will show up on your doorstep. Why? Because our habitual, logical way of encountering adversity is to fill it with all kinds of qualities and characteristics and fix it in what it is and what it's doing to you and me and why it makes all the sense in the world to get away from it to stomp it down, to beat it. And all the while, <clears throat> not necessarily recognizing that that's the same thing we've been doing. And so to encounter, but now from within the path, from within the power of your meditation, of your ability to sit and see what's there, and see it as Padmasambhava said, without fabricating, without modifying, free from mental constructs. Now, that doesn't mean that that just happens, obviously. This shin is a testimony to that for everyone, right? Because those habits are still habits. But now we have the opportunity to see the, the mental construction, to see that we are creating something in the presence of something. And if we're paying attention, watch it grow. Watch it get more of whatever we think it is. And so we can't develop that degree of stability and mindfulness and concentration and faith and skillfulness abstractly. It doesn't work that way. Nothing works that way. It's like sitting on the couch watching, you know, Wimbledon and say, I'm going to be the, a great tennis player. <laughs> I remember years ago when I was in music school, we did a master class with a very famous uh, pianist. And then he performed that night. He did a whole a series of Beethoven sonatas. And afterwards, I was talking with some of my friends who were, some of whom were in music school and some weren't. And one of them said, I would love to be able to do that, to play like that. And I said, really? <laughs> really, would you? Do you know what that means? <laughs> so we have to face the things that we are convinced are obstructing us from the life that we want and sense exists so that we can not only learn how to practice them, but ultimately realize they are not that. They are not all of those things in our perceptual fields. They exist within a state that the Dharma calls suchness, free. 
And so we practice freeing the mind of discriminating consciousness. That is, the mind that is constantly naming and dividing and putting into categories and loving and hating so that we can live in a world where all of that is existent, is present. And that we have our own attractions and repulsions, but those are being transformed. What are all of those things without the reference of a self? What is being defensive when there is no self that is, needs to be defended? What is being hurt when you can find no self that exists in which that hurt abides? Which doesn't mean to ignore the causes of that hurt. Why? Because it causes suffering. And because that suffering makes it so much harder to have faith. And so while we need adversity, we need it, in a sense, (laughs) somewhat equal to our capacity to practice it, which isn't always how it works out. Sometimes you don't get to choose. But that's kind of what this is. Right? So we very, very carefully create an environment in which you have the opportunity to singularly devote yourself to that which has been transmitted all throughout the centuries, to that which all of our ancestors have done, sat on this very same cushion, facing this very same mind, with a reasonable amount of adversity. Right? And we don't have to do much. We don't have to do anything. Right? Everybody just has to show up. Right? We bring it with us. Some of it's ancient, some of it's more present, more contemporary, more just happening. And we voluntarily, pla- voluntarily place ourselves on this cushion and say, I'm not going to turn away from this which is bold, right? It's bold. So from the very beginning, before we even know, there's a sense that I can do that, even when you may be telling yourself you can't do it. And then there you are, doing it. There's a teaching that I thought was kind of interesting, points to this. And he's talking about the authors, this is Dzogchen Ponlap, a Tibetan teacher. He's talking about the moment of insight, the moment of, of the experience of suchness, of, of Prajnapanamita. And he describes it as an aha experience. So he says that experience is what we call the meeting of the mother and the child luminosities. The mother-like luminosity is the ground luminosity, the basic reality of all phenomena, the fundamental unborn, undying. The childlike luminosity is our individual experience of that nature. In reality, these two are not separate. They're separated only by our perception of being apart. And when the two meet and merge into one, we have a non-dual experience of luminosity. Kind of a nice way of, of talking about it. 
mother and child. He said, when the mother and child luminosities meet, it's not like the meeting of two separate and unrelated people. It's your child. It's your mother. There is a powerful and instantaneous recognition of connection and affirmation, primordial. When a child meets its mother, it knows, this is my mom. There's no question. The child does not have to think about it and say, is this my mom or not? Are you my mother? (laughs) Mother-like luminosity is wisdom, prajna, the empty aspect of Buddha wisdom. Child-like luminosity is the path, urupaya, aspect of our basic wisdom. The mother-like luminosity, you can't practice that. You can't turn towards it or away from it. You can't cultivate it. You can't make it larger. Childlike luminosity is the path. That's what we practice. That's what we cultivate. That's what creates a sense of coming closer. The childlike luminosity is said to be slightly impure in the sense that it's still conceptual. For example, when we first start to experience selflessness on the path, it's theoretical. We have ideas about it. We see things coming and going. They're not permanent. We can understand they're not permanent, but we don't realize that as emptiness because it's still conceptual. And so we rely on study and contemplation as well as different forms of meditation to help us grasp this in a way that is still based in conceptual understanding, but is allowing us to come closer. Eventually, that aspect drops away so that we can practice resting, being in the nature of your mind, your primordial consciousness, suchness. As our realization matures, it becomes progressively less conceptual. And that's just a a natural part of the practice that you can't, you know, it's observable in moments where we separate a little bit. And we recognize that that conceptual aspect is starting to soften and fall away. That's how mindfulness develops into Samadhi and concentration, which develops naturally into luminous awareness. And then he says, the terminology for this experience of luminosity varies according to tradition, but all names for it point to the same reality. We call it prajnaparamita, the perfection of wisdom. We call it the great mother. We call it ultimate truth or absolute truth. We call it non-conceptual wisdom. We call it ordinary mind. And he's speaking, you know, from the Tibetan tradition. It's not different. It is utterly consistent with his treatise, with what the koans are teaching, with what the sutras we study teach, with what is happening on this cushion. Dogen says, 
the, the, the treatise is talking about and, and recognizing that, that we're all different in our sameness, that we all have mother-like luminosity, that's your Buddha nature, but we also are all a, a child of luminosity, which we're all on the same path, but in different ways. We've come here in different ways. We have different histories. We have different bodies. We've shown up in the world in different ways. The world has responded to us in different ways. And we've taken all of that in to be what the world is and who we are. We have done different things in our lives. Some of those things have prepared us well to practice. Some of those things have not. And so there's just a recognition of that in the teachings that we have to go through this our own way. Dogen says, human capacity is greatly varied. For example, there are those who, have, who already have understanding at birth, are born with a kind of wisdom. Now, you parents probably think all of your children were born this way. <laughs> Maybe they were. <laughs> at birth, these, these who are born with understanding are free of birth. That means they understand with the body at the beginning, middle, and end of birth. There are those who understand through study, ultimately understanding the self through practice. That means they practice with the body, the skin, the flesh, the bones, and marrow of study. Besides those who have understanding at birth or through study, there are those who have understanding as Buddhas. They go beyond the boundary of self and other, having no limit in this very place, and are not concerned or attached to the notion of self and other. There are those who understand without teachers, although they don't rely upon teachers, sutras, essence, or form, they do not turn the self around nor merge with others. Among all these types of people, don't regard one as sharp and another as dull. I know you were doing that. Right? We're always trying to figure out, okay, where am I, where am I? Where? Ah, I'd like to be that one, but I just don't think so. <laughs> don't regard one as sharp and another as dull. Various types of people, as they are, actualize various types of accomplishment. While you were busy developing certain things in your life, there were other things maybe you were developing. Other people were developing those things. Certain qualities, certain skills, certain attributes that may be serving you well in your Dharma practice. Linji said in the great, Master Linji said, in the great nation of Tang, China, if you look for a single person who is not enlightened, it's hard to find a single one. If you look for a person who is not enlightened in just this, you cannot find one. If you look for a single person in this, in their primordial mind, in their original place, you cannot find one. The self of yesterday's self, your yesterday's self, is not unenlightened. The self of today's other is not unenlightened. Among the past and present of mountain beings and water beings, there are none that are unenlightened. Students of the way should study Linji's statement. This is Dogen in this way, without wasting time. There is none of us that is enlightened, and we are on the path to realize enlightenment. And those are not in conflict or at odds.
And that's why faith is so important. I'll talk more about that tomorrow, the substance, the miracle, the magic of faith. So we can appreciate why that is so important, to have faith that I am such a person, I am just this, that the teachings are speaking to, and to cultivate a very genuine faith in that. At the same time that my everyday, ordinary experiences don't necessarily seem to be confirming that. How does that align? How does that harmonize? Well, in the words of a great master, do I contradict myself? Very well. I contradict myself. I am vast, boundless, and contain the multitude. So do each of us. And so let's continue on. You know, session is so important. And the beginning and end has a reality. And it's also just a construction. Right? It didn't begin on Monday. It doesn't end tomorrow. Let that be true. Thanks so much for listening. For meditation supplies such as cushions, incense, liturgical instruments, dharma books, and more, visit monasterystore.org. Support for your spiritual practice at home.